journals published by Cell Press. Human Genetics, Biophysical Journal, Cancer Cell, Cell, Cell Host and Microbe, Cell Metabolism, Cell Reports, Cell Stem Cell, okay, Current Bio, Developmental Cell, Immunity, Molecular Cell, Neuron, Structure, Trends. Yeah, because it's like, Cell's one of those journals where it has a high impact factor, but you need to be doing things that are relevant to get in. Yeah. I, well, I think my problem, the problem with Cell is that it has such a high impact factor that it ends up being like people, you know, you have to do like this really important experiments and sort of pack stuff in, but it also doesn't have a page limit like, you know, say science or nature does. So then people just put everything in. Yeah. Which I guess artificially inflates that impact factor. We can talk about this because the, uh, the pseudo politics of uh, academic publication is actually super fascinating, but... You are listening to Expert Citation, Episode 3. Genomics, General Audiences, and Rio de Janeiro. Welcome to another episode of Expert Citation. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about genomics, but first let's introduce ourselves. I'm Joe Cuevas. I am a paleontologist, question mark. Uh, joining me is now a PhD candidate. Uh, I'm Kelsey McCoy. I am a biophysicist and current PhD candidate as of this morning. Which is great. And we also have, uh, we also have this other guy. Who are you? Uh, I'm Tyler Birch. I'm enrolled in a PhD program, so there's that. <laughs> and you're a particle physicist. Yes, I'm a particle physicist. Uh, and uh, this is Expert Citation. This is a show where we all sit down every week and we find an open access journal article because those are supposed to be easy to understand or at least accessible, and we talk about it. Uh, this week's was at least one of those things. Uh, we'll talk about it in a bit. First, we're going to go over how our weeks, or as the case may be, last two weeks in research have been. So, uh, thing, uh, we have a cool part of a mini-series about grad school in general, where Kelsey and Tyler talk a little bit about what PhD qualifying exams are like and sort of the uh, grad school culture around that. First, specifically, there are two programs, but they talk a little bit about what it could be like at other institutions, too. Uh, which is helpful because it can be very different even within the same institution across departments. Uh, I also talked, as I mentioned, to uh, one of my friends and colleagues who is a doctor of psychology, and we talked a little bit about Batman and the psychology of Magic the Gathering, because you can, in fact, find at least some science at San Diego Comic-Con. I attended at least five panels about that. Cool beans. <laughs> Can't wait until they get the um, Hall H panel about science. Oh man, that'd be so fun though. I don't want to just start this off talking about everything I did at Comic-Con. So let's start with Tyler. What did you do last uh, for the last week and a half? Uh, so the last week and a half of my research has been uh, 
taking very, very unclean code that I've been writing for uh, months now and uh, cleaning it up and getting it ready to uh, implement in a package that's going to be used for our whole research group. Um, it's, it's a group of about 100 people, so it's, it's kind of cool seeing my work going out to uh, more than just me. Um, and so that's been a little tedious, but it's really cool to see, uh, you know, something actually happening with that. Um, and yeah. So this is like, uh, this is like the later phase of continued adventures in debugging. Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, it's debugging, but also I added a bunch of features to the code. So I actually did something productive. So that's cool. I mean, that... You're making it sound like the code is significantly cleaner and more functional than it was when we last checked. Oh, yeah. Which is always a good thing. So. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, congratulations. Good yeah. job. Doing things. Also, the endless grind of uh, studying for my quals, which is in three weeks now. So that's, that's going. We'll leave it at that. You'll get there. Uh, just like Kelsey did. Kelsey, how are you? I uh, spent the last two weeks, more or less, just preparing for my qualifying exam, which was this morning. So uh, it went well, though. Uh, you know, I, I passed, so I guess that's the uh, <laughs> um, ultimate measure of it going well. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I was really, I was just preparing my thesis proposal and reading every paper I could find about my topic uh, the last two weeks and then I mean there was a little bit of travel in there too because I can't schedule things apparently um it's so, okay neither uh, can most people in academia <laughs> which is why your quals had to be today yeah no it's because you know getting two professors in one room for two hours is apparently impossible uh so as this was my qual was in the literally the one two-hour window uh, before between now and September that I could get both members of my committee into a room. So, um, yeah, can't wait to do that every year for committee meetings. But the important thing is you did the science and now you can do more science. Yeah. Now I can actually start doing the experiments that I proposed and hope they work. So really good first steps. So in addition to going to Comic-Con, where I attended no fewer than five panels on uh, various sciences with respect to mostly Star Wars and... Uh, actually, this year, mostly Star Trek, because it's the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Uh, but mostly Star Trek, mostly Star Wars. Uh, there was one panel on the psychology of Captain America Civil War, where we talked about both sides of uh, Civil War and both versions of Civil War. So that was interesting. But, no, I did some, uh, I got some progress in writing, so now my next step is to write an introduction. And so I need to look back at my literature search and sort of contextualize the time period I'm working with uh, and how it relates to work that other people have done and what it tells us about both today and the sort of broader field of marine paleontology. So it'll, it'll be fun. I think uh, the sources I have are going to help me tell the story that I think the data are telling. Which is... That's the goal. <laughs> generally good? Yeah. It's a, it's a pretty wantable goal, I think. Uh, and the fact that my sources seem to agree 
should make this easier. But yeah, it's going. Writing is a thing. Yeah. It's the least fun part. Uh... It, it, it really is, uh, if only because it's so drastically different than everything else in the scientific process. Because a lot of scientists aren't necessarily great at writing things. And uh, it seems like it's it shouldn't be a... It, it seems like not being able to write shouldn't prohibit you from pursuing science. And I, indeed, I think if you have uh, less developed writing sk skills, you shouldn't stop yourself from pursuing science. But I do think it is a fairly easy skill to improve, and yet several people in academia don't necessarily put that effort in. Well, I think part of that is because academic writing values uh, sort of economy of words Absolutely. over clarity um, of statements. So you end up with uh, sort of trying to package as much information into as few words as possible. And then it's just sort of a mess of jargon and clauses and you have no idea what they're actually trying to communicate because God forbid you take two sentences to say something when you can spend six words saying it, but then sure, need 20 minutes to decode. Which specific language uh, that is common to scientific writing. We, we talked about this a little on our last episode where in a lot of scientific writing you'll find these oddly specific words which may obscure the meaning. And uh, in a lot of cases it may not actually be intentional. It could be that the intent there is they want a more specific meaning in fewer words. So they use a word that nobody ever uses in everyday life. Or a word that means something else in everyday day life. Yes. And but means something very specific. And sometimes that meaning varies field to field. Yes. And it's just, I mean, we talk a lot about accessibility in terms of like open access papers and making it so papers, people are able to access um, our work. But I think an, an important part of that is making it so that once people can access it, they can understand it or at least parse it. Um, because otherwise it doesn't do anybody any good. I completely agree. <laughs> Which is why I think that open access journalists should hold themselves to an editorial standard where they can think about that. But the other part of that is journals are also subject to that publisher parish thing where they want to get good work published in their journal. They want to get work that will bring notoriety to their journal because it's this weird symbiotic relationship. Yeah, the more citations they get, the higher their impact factor is. So yeah. the more people want to publish in their journal. So, yeah. So, yeah. Academia is a funny beast, to say the least. <laughs> it's something, all right. And with that, uh, should we go to this week's paper? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Kelsey found this week's. Uh, it's it was published in Cell Reports, which is the open access facing arm of Cell Press. Uh, Cell Press, known for such journals as Cell, Current Biology, American Journal of Human Genetics, Biophysical Journal, Cancer Cell, Cell Host and Microbe, Cell Metabolism, Cell Stem Cell, Developmental Cell, Community Molecular Cell. Uh, a lot of these journals have the word cell in them, uh, so I think you can sort of guess where this uh where this actually it's not necessarily an independent publisher it's a it's an imprint right you can tell where this imprint is sort of pitching their uh their publishing they look more at cellular biology stuff uh sort of the i want to say small scale just because of physical size but it seems like an inaccurate descriptor of the actual field <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and Cell itself, like the, you know, just Cell is very much one of those big three journals uh, in terms of impact factor. It's up there with nature and science. Um, It's pretty much the gold standard outside of nature for um, biologists uh, to publish in. Absolutely. So it's a very prestigious uh, publication. Yeah, it's got an impact factor of 28.710. So that means on, that's a mean value, right? Where what's published in Cell versus what's cited in Cell will get 28.71 publications to every, uh, 28.71 citations to every publication, right? I think that's how impact factors work. Something like that. The point is, it's a high impact factor. Like, it, that means it's a prestigious journal. Yeah, it, 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 which for a variety of, reason, of reasons, it means that the um, that the work is visible and also that the work is being used to uh, to do more science is probably one of the easiest ways to say that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the 2015 impact factor, and these are public calculated yearly. So I think that means specifically for the year. 2015 that was the ratio and we should probably just throw in that impact factors while widely used in ter- in scientific and academic publications have come under fire recently and are somewhat controversial in terms of how we decide what are important journals what are important publications um especially since high impact journals tend to have the highest retraction rates uh yeah. so there are uh issues with that uh it's probably we can talk about that some other time i'm sure but that is uh something to keep keep in mind when talking about impact factors absolutely and i I think uh the other part that comes into play there is suitability for specific journals like not every not every article is going to be a nature or science or cell article but not every article needs to be a nature or science or cell article as long as it's addressing the study that was conducted but that's an entire other can of worms we could do an entire other podcast on the nature of scientific publication but i do think it was important (laughs) to at least touch on uh, with respect to this because cell cell press is that interesting thing and uh the fact that they have an open uh open access journal is worth discussing uh Uh, definitely yeah so cell reports uh interesting publication uh linked to more interesting publications so the way that they format like the pdf um of this paper, of this cell reports paper, looks identical to a cell paper. Um, So, you know, they really are sort of trading in the sort of brand identity of cell. No, absolutely, because I I think part of that is it's it's the same imprint, and I think the imprint is trying to embody the bigger brand identity of cell in general, where, yes, there's cell, but here's these specific versions of cell. Like, uh, I personally don't like... um, coca-cola very much but i love vanilla coke uh because it's more suitable for my purposes so it's like okay i am not a uh i am not necessarily going to be doing broader work in cellular bio but i do a lot of really interesting uh cancer biology work on that level so maybe i'll submit to cancer cell instead of cell and maybe i'll still get that cool cell paper yeah definitely i just think it's uh (laughs) worth noting that like if you don't know that this is you know, cell reports, and you're looking at the sort of PDF of the paper, you would think it's a cell paper. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, it's like how Elsevier owns every other journal. So, you know, it's uh, well, the no, economy of academic press. publishing. Elsevier owns Yeah, no, Elsevier owns everything. It's like a 
monopoly of academic publishing. So yeah, academic publishing. It's a weird thing. <laughs> Arguably weirder than the stuff that's actually coming out of academia. Uh, the actual article is Identification of Zika Virus and Dengue Virus, Dependency Factors Using Functional Genomes, published in Cell Press in, I want to say, yes, June of 2016. Uh, copyright the authors, who include uh, Sa- Savidus, McDougall, and Mariner, those are all three co-first authors, which is the first time I have ever heard that term. Oh yeah, that's coming into vogue. That's the thing that people like to do now. <laughs> uh, also, Pereira, Portman, Trincucci, John, Acker, Renzette, Robbins, Guo, Green, Kowalik, and Brass. And it looks like Brass is the corresponding author. Yeah, that's the that's like the cataloging information behind this article it's uh one thing i do like is that it has a visual abstract yeah i've seen that more and more um jacks does it the journal of the american chemical society does it now too and i think it's a a sort of great way to condense sort of complex (laughs) uh abstract information into you know a nice figure yeah uh, i'm going to throw to our particle physicist here who does not have a great deal of biology training at all uh, what did you think of the visual abstract? Um, it was uh, it was pretty. <laughs> I'll give it that. Yeah. Um, I completely agree with that statement. Uh, did you understand so, it? Yeah, looking at it, having not read any part of the paper, I was uh, bamboozled, we'll say. Um, sure. I had pretty much no idea what it was showing me. Um, also, didn't know what any of the acronyms really meant. Um, so it was pretty much useless for me. Okay. Going into the paper. Uh, retrospect now, having read the paper, coming back and looking at it, I have uh, somewhat of a better idea of what's going on, and um, th- it is helpful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, going in, uh, it's not very enlightening if you don't really know what's going on beforehand. Thank you. Yeah, um... I do think that it, because um, I'm a I'm a paleontologist. I don't necessarily do cellular things, and I haven't taken a great number of classes on this. Uh, so I like the picture of the mosquitoes, uh, and I think I can pick out where the dengue virus is, where uh, the Zika virus is, and it looks like the Golgi apparatus plays some role in this. So I think I'm going to be seeing some cellular transport in this paper, but. Besides that, I'm a little lost. Uh, it's a nice figure. I like it's visually appealing. I think it does an interesting job of telling me that Zika and Dengue are going to be involved, and by extension, mosquitoes, but the title told me that. So the only thing I really gained from looking at this before reading it was the Golgi apparatus. I will say, as the resident biologist, I don't think this is it's a nice look it's an it is a nice looking figure i don't think it's necessarily the most informative sure uh you know they doesn't it you know highlights some important factors you know i look at this and i say okay there's going to be some membrane you know endocyto- endocytosis you know vesicle trafficking but that's nothing more specific than that you know they list all these factors they are meaningless even, um, you know, as I'm sure some, like uh, somebody who actually works in genomics would look at all that list of factors and just be like, okay, uh, what does this even, you know, 
mean. Sure. I don't know if there's a better visual visual way to really represent some of, of what they're trying to what they're trying to do here, but uh, it's not necessarily actually informative. Yeah, the thing for me, uh, looking at it uh, retrospectively now, um, is going through the paper. They went through all these acronyms. It was like, okay, I understand kind of what this is, kind of what that is. Um, but now seeing it again, I now have a better idea kind of spatially of where these things sure. are um, and what kind of goes with what. And I think that's helpful. Although having it as an abstract or a figure in the middle of the paper, you know, you could do it either way. It really doesn't yeah. matter. So I think like visual abstracts can be con constructive, but I'm not necessarily sure that this one was uh, based on our feedback to it. Yeah, and I would just say that in general, genomics figures are hard to make look nice and be informative. Right. Genomics is a very esoteric field, um, even to biologists, I think, so. Yeah. Actually, most, geno no, most people who work in genomics have a physics background, and not, actually mo biologists tend not to end up in that field. Yeah, that makes sense based on what little I know about it. I will say with that statement, you said genomics is esoteric. I think, yeah, probably the study of it is, but the results coming out of it by no means are. Um, I mean, I would argue that to some extent, but like the. <laughs> I mean, judging by this paper, um, I mean, they found a real result that could, in some way, shape, or form, help towards remedying this. Right. It's it's true, and there certainly have been a lot of important and inf informative results that have come out of genomics as a field. I just think that uh, it has never lived up to sort of the promise of, of the Human Genome Project, the promise of, of big data, um, in part because we just know so little about particularly the human genome, you know, we can, we have the sequence, but we don't know what it means. And you can do as many genomic studies as you want. And it's not all, and it's not necessarily going to, you're not going to get more than a tiny bit of information. Um, so maybe you identify a significant, you know, a real result, a significant factor, but that doesn't mean we know what it does or know what to do with it. So. Right. Yeah. I definitely think that the genome project as a whole is the importance of it and the, uh, all around, it was pretty bloated when it came out compared to where we sit today. Yeah. I would say so that the, right real, the real value of the Human Genome Project was sequencing technology. was the fact that yes. now I can get, you can send out an entire human genome, have it sequenced, and get interpretations of the results uh, like for $1,500. For like scientific level, like, you know, reads. It's not just, you know, 23andMe or whatever level quality. You can get good quality sequences for super cheap um and that's all because on of the scale of scientific project uh, uh, cheap on the scale of scientific grants that is yes yes not cheap for your average person uh <laughs> which is part of the reason there is a quality difference between uh between scientific sequencing and consumer sequencing and 23andme and dog sequencing and yeah which is and, and yeah it's this weird thing where it is cheap to conduct relatively cheap to conduct a study for it but still a fair amount of money all things considered yeah uh i just have one final question on this figure and i realize i'm spending a lot of time on it but tyler how much cellular physiology did you do in high school or college uh very very little um i took a freshman level biology class and that is pretty much 
the extent of it. And that's freshman in high school, a freshman in high school level biology class. Okay, that's how did you that's get through important. college without having to take bio? Uh, I took a lot of physics and a lot of chemistry. So, I mean, I I did. I didn't even have a biology degree in college, but it was like a a university requirement that everybody take a biology class. Ours was, uh, you did a lab science. So for me, lab science was physics one. Cool. See, we had to do lab physical science. So physics or chemistry and a lab biological science. Um, Uh, my undergrad was very heavy in, uh, basically, cross-discipline learning so if you were in like a science they made sure and pushed you to take some sort of like art class or if you took an art degree you were pushed to do a science class so like even like the music majors had to take a lab science sure yeah but they didn't yeah really no i think do i think like, like the general bachelor's requirements for my university are you need a physical science a life science and a lab science and then the lab science can be either one of the other two depending on whether you're taking like lecture versions or lectures in lab yeah, so for us, like, it was the general require the general university-wide requirement was a physical science with a lab and a life science with a lab. I mean, a lot of people got out of it by taking biology of the global garden um, or geology in the cinema, but, you know, it was still a sorry, requirement. Sorry, geology in the cinema? That was an actual, that is an actual class you can take for credit at the University of Minnesota. I am going to look up the textbook for that because that sounds fucking interesting. Apparently it's horrible, but uh, <laughs> I am. I would not be surprised if it is. Take. But I, I feel like I could, if given the textbook and a sufficient amount of time, I could write a better version of that class. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I, I thought that was just important because I feel like Tyler was fairly blind going into this, and I want wanted to know his background level. Uh, I was very blind, but I do know that the uh, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the powerhouse soul. of the soul. <laughs> God. And you can take that with you back to adventuresinchemistry.tumblr.com. <laughs> <laughs> Let's actually dive back into this paper. So uh, it's very esoteric out of the gate, and I think that was a major concern that we all had uh, about this. So the introduction talked a little bit about the history of uh, sort of modern epidemiology. Yeah, they tried. Like, I thought uh, it was an interesting way to discuss it, but I feel like there was a better way to discuss it. So they're specifically concerned with uh, dengue, fever, virus, and Zika virus, um, which are both a similar class of virus. The flavivirus. Brief mentions of uh, similar viri, uh, yellow fever, and West Nile. Very brief mentions. Yeah. <laughs> um... <laughs> So they do kind of go over uh, the sort of global stats about those viruses and the basics of what we know about their, because they're concerned with their mechanism and life cycle in cells. Um, As we know, viruses hijack healthy cell, in this case, human cells, and make them churn out a bunch of new virus, which kills the cells in the process. And so they talk a little bit about uh, what we know about how these two viruses do that. I thought it was an interesting overview. I feel like it could have been done better, but I understand that it's the sort of thing where it is something that just needs to be laid out as background, just the way the paper is laid out. And I feel like having it, I feel like I was not satisfied with the level of background they laid out. 
Yeah, I agree. It was even, I mean, it was both, I felt like, insufficiently detailed and very dense. Mm -hmm. And it just was hard to actually get at what they thought was important about um, these two viruses outside of the obvious, you know, uh, thing where they kill people um, and cause birth defects. Like, it seemed the big takeaway to me was, this is us contextualizing how flaviviruses work. Which made me think, isn't that just the point of an introduction? Can't you do this better? Yeah. Like, the introduction is often the hardest part of a paper to write. Yeah. But it should be the easiest part of a paper to read. Yes, absolutely. And this was still <laughs> difficult to get through. I'm not sure if it was the hardest part of the paper to read, but it was difficult. I think and it I, shouldn't be difficult. I think that I hated it a lot less than you guys. <laughs> which is weird um, yeah it was a dense in terms of they used a lot of uh, big words and a lot of uh, abbreviations and stuff and got really straight into that but I mean I thought they did a, a fair job of explaining like okay why this exists and why we're studying it um, sure at, right out the gate like hey this but you don't need to tell me why you're studying dengue fever yeah but it seems like that's a pretty common precedent in papers as like motivation to the study um so i guess i was okay with it um and you know by the end of it i had an idea of what they were going to investigate and kind of a general idea of what was going on i thought that it checked off all the boxes that it needed to check off maybe not as well as it could have but it do anything wrong i guess right i mean i guess that's how i feel about most of this paper is that, you know, it checks things off. Yeah. You yeah. know, it tells me what it, it is, what is obligated as a scientific paper in a decent journal to tell me. Yeah. But it doesn't, like, go above and beyond. It feels obligatory at times, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, that was the major vibe I had going off of the introduction, which rubbed me the wrong way. <laughs> should we just go into the results, because that's the next section, or should we do figure one? Um, do we want to do a high level of crash course in modern biology before we get I into the results? Before, yeah, let's, let's just quickly deluge into this is what modern biology is and this is part of the context that this paper exists within. Yeah, so two of the um, main techniques that they use in this paper are RNAi. Um, and CRISPR. And so those are both really important uh, modern techniques. Uh, RNAi has been around for a little while, um, but maybe like 20 years, 20, 30 years at this point. And what it stands for is RNA interference. And basically what it is is that you can knock down gene expression. So you can make it so cells stop expressing certain proteins um, Mm -hmm. using small little pieces of double-stranded RNA. And most RNA is single-stranded. RNA in your cells tends to just be a single strand, but then there's also this double-stranded RNA that what it does is it, when you put it in the cells, it pairs with its complementary mRNA, which is the RNA that is produced from your DNA and then leads to the production of proteins in your cells. So here's um, double-stranded RNA binds specifically to the targeted mRNA in the cells, and that labels it or targets it for degradation. 
So you're actually in a specific manner causing cells to destroy um, mRNA of a protein that you don't want produced. Um, and it's uh, people use this to do um, targeted knockdowns. If they have a specific gene they're interested in, they use whole libraries of it. You know, they make libraries of every gene in a genome and do it and look at, you know, genome, what they do here is genome-wide screens. It's very effective uh, and a very uh, simple and uh, uh, technique. And then the other thing that they talk about and the other thing that they use is called CRISPR um, or CRISPR-Cas9. And this is like a four-year-old um, system that, I mean, it'll, it'll be a Nobel Prize here in the next probably two or three years. Yeah. And CRISPR-Cas9 is a way of targeted um, gene modification. So Cas9 is a, people describe it as a DNA scissors. It's a protein that goes into cells and cuts DNA. Um, and CRISPR is a system where you can actually tell, direct Cas9 and tell it where to go in the genome and where to cut the DNA. And if you make a cut in DNA, you can modify DNA. And so you can use it to insert um, sequences into chromosomal um, DNA. So people use it to add uh, labels they used to add all the time. They used to add uh, fluorescent proteins um, on genes that they want uh, to uh, visualize. You can use it to delete genes. You can use it to modify genes. You can use it to add mutations. It's very, very versatile and very, very easy to do. Um, and sort of in the last four years has been revolutionizing uh, cell biology. Um, so those are the two um, sort of modern important techniques that they um, are using on a wide scale level. So I want to say to summarize this, the two big techniques that they're using are to silence specific gene sequences and to modify others. Yeah. Just sort of as a big condensation of everything you've said. Basically. Yeah. No, it's, they're both really interesting techniques. Uh, I've seen CRISPR-Cas9 a lot in the news, and there's a lot of interesting work being done with it. And mm-hmm. I do think it is important to understand these methods before going into this. It's just, this can get esoteric, and we understand that. Science is hard. <laughs> yeah, I tried to keep it high level, but I'm also a biologist, so like my right. high level biology is like actually pretty classical. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it really is. It's uh, it's interesting, it's cool, but there's a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. It's, yeah. So uh, I think before we move into the results, we should do figure one just because it's there. Uh, and it says this is a schematic workflow of the dengue virus HF screen. Panel A, that is. Uh, and that panel B is the HeLa cells that were transfected with the negative and positive controls for 72 hours, and then infected with dengue virus. And then the legend continues on the next page. That is a poor layout. Uh, Panel C is the results of the dengue HF screens with the uh, siRNA pools ranked in order of their normalized percent infection. Panel D is based on the rigor 3 screen data set, hypothetical model of the cell, highlighting the dengue virus life cycle. So I think the big... I've seen metabolism diagrams less complicated than panel D. 
Yeah. I, I feel like the panel D is the big takeaway, but I also don't like panel D. Panel D is too detailed. Yeah. Like, I think there's a lot going on in this figure, and I'm not sure how much it can give you in. Uh, Tyler, you said the standard time frame was, like, what, five minutes for understanding a figure even after reading The Legends? Oh, I say one minute. Um, in this case, with it being such a, a dense graphic, I would give it a few more minutes. Usually what I'm talking sure. about there is, like, a table or a, a graph. Um, so in this case, I would probably allot it more time, but still, I mean, it would take me... 20 minutes to understand what's going on here. I commented to you guys earlier that it looked like a, a circuit diagram on cocaine. Like, it's just so many things going on. I will say that panels A and B, like, as someone, I mean, I've taken a genomics class. I have a passing familiarity with how they set these screens up. Panels A and B, like, to me, were both very understandable and useful in actually interpreting what they were trying to say in the text. Um, I don't know what's going on in panel C and panel D is just impenetrable. Does panel C have to do with the RNA, uh, the RNA technique? It says silencer. Uh, panel, no, silencer select is the name of the, one of the, uh, libraries of the RNAi that they used. Uh, that's not, uh. And so is smart pool. Um, I think they're trying to show like the efficacy of certain gene, the enrichment of certain genes. I don't know. I think yeah. they're basically trying to show that using two different, cause they use three different RNA libraries, um, for, to, to control for, um, false, cause false positives and false negatives are a huge problem in genomics. Uh, so they use three different libraries and I think they're trying to show that in these two, two libraries in silencer select and smart pool, they have similar patterns of enrichment. Okay. So I said panel D was the one that had the most meat, but Kelsey, you said that A and B were understandable and added clarity. Uh, as a cell biologist, what do these tell you? So panel A is the setup of the assay. Yeah. So, so that um, seems to be a little bit like a methods figure. Yeah. Cool. I like um, methods figures. They're so, usually interesting. <laughs> So panel A show, tells me what they did, you know, the time frame that they used and sort of what their readouts were. And then panel B is actually showing an example of their readouts. So these, this is, they use, you know, very, um, so you can see like in blue, they've labeled the DNA. So that's all of the cells that survived the infection. And then in green, they have, a specific marker for uh, the dengue virus, or a, I guess it's an immunostain against the a cap a protein um, that it produces if it's produce if the cell is producing the virus, um, and so you can see what cells are producing the virus. So what cells are actively infected? I think it's an interesting way to visualize it. I think it's very useful, but you would need to know how the visualization works in order to comprehend it yeah no that's definitely like i can interpret that figure because i have looked at genomics data i know and i have to know a little bit about how genomics um data works yeah. so other otherwise i think that might not be a very useful but it is definitely targeted at people um in the field yeah um, or just it, i mean this is this is cell, this is um this is cell reports so it's pitched at cell biologists uh yeah. who would probably almost definitely get what that's saying 
Uh, I do think that it's a visualization that could work in a broader context, given explanation. What's not clear from panel B is that what they're actually using is they use, it's like something like 296 well plates um, and each well um, contains like, you know, say maybe 50 microliters of cells. And so each, and each well is a different condition. Um, so in this case, each well has a different gene that's being silenced. And so that's actually what you're visualizing. So each dot um, is a different uh, condition. Okay. And that's not necessarily made clear um, in the figure itself. Yeah. Now that you've explained it, uh, panel A makes way more sense. It's like, oh, these are well plates. Everything makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's pretty. And, and pretty is an important step towards being easy to understand. But I think my concern is it's not necessarily something that's easily rocked if you're not in the field. Definitely. What do you guys think of panel D, which is that outline of everything going on in the cell? Tyler, you said it was like a circuit diagram on cocaine? Yes, that's the verbiage I used. It's just so much. Like, I appreciate that these are complex processes and there's a lot going on, but you don't need to put it all on one, one figure. Just isolate the processes that you are actually looking at. <laughs> this seems like a classic case of over-explaining. Because I either know this information because I'm a virologist who studies, you know, the life cycle of flaviviruses, or I don't care. Yeah. Tyler, can you find the mitochondria in this figure? Yeah, it's on the right mm -hmm. side, and it's, it's being the powerhouse for the cell. Nice. So what's glycolysis? Uh... <laughs> 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 I feel like when you said like a circuit, uh, like a circuit diagram on cocaine, I thought uh, like a circuit diagram, but it's alive. <laughs> That's basically what metabolic charts are. I mean, it reads like one. It reads like a circuit diagram. Yeah. So it's just yeah. I mean, because essentially they are just biological circuits. I agree. Yeah. Like it's alive. That's the only, that's the biggest difference. All right. So should we move on to the actual results? Yeah, I feel like we're yeah. just like pushing uh, this. So along. that was. So uh, I have to say that I understood basically what they were doing in terms of the RNAi screens. I do not know what the difference is between the, I mean, between these various, like the more screens and the rigor analysis and those different sort of analytical tools that they use to interpret their data. Um, yeah. Which I just assume that that's all like fancy statistics. Yeah. It read kind of like uh, uh, how I read particle physics papers at some point. Um, a lot of times when they're doing these uh, various simulations, it's all the you know framework that they set up and they named. Um, usually, it's based off one or two uh, general software tools, but there's you know packages and things they add on themselves. Um, and it read very much like, okay, well, this is this analysis tool, and this is this analysis tool, and the way A or B performs is they kind of describe that. I think they did describe why they chose. Uh, they used two different ones, right? And they described why they chose which ones, which is useful. You mean the RNA libraries or the analytical tools? I don't remember. There were two RNA libraries. That's maybe isn't. There were two RNA libraries. There were, yeah. Okay. Uh, but there are multiple analytical tools here. 
I think. I mean, yeah, there usually are. Because, I mean, the data sets are just so big. There's, you know, 20,000 human genes, give or take, and those are the, they're looking at all of them. So you're going to get false positives and false negatives, and you have to handle them differently. And significance is its own beast in those cases. So would you, how much of this results section would you say is sort of that big data sprawling out of control? I mean, I will say this. If you do genomics, that's, those are the details that you want because right. that tells you, like, are, are their results actually significant? Are there, you know, is their analysis valid? I feel like that is maybe better placed in a supplement um, or an appendix because, like, actually reading this, I can condense this whole section down to they use two different RNA libraries and they got so many hits in right. terms of significantly enriched uh, genes. Because this is a very long section and I'm not sure how much of it is necessarily comprehensible with my background and with Tyler's background. <laughs> it's not particularly comprehensible with my background. That does not fill me with confidence. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would say that in terms of like sort of all of the results, both from the SRIRNA screen and from the CRISPR screen, is that what's interesting is they identify these um, membrane trafficking factors as important for the viral life cycle. Right. Um, when they knock down, in, the, in case of the RNA eye screen, when they knock down these um, endoplasmic reticulum membrane complex factors um, that are involved in endocytosis, so uptake of uh, the um, things on the surface of the membrane into the cell, then the virus can't get into the cell. And so it, the cells aren't infected. And the complexation factors are allowing things to join the endoplasmic reticulum? So the endoplasmic reticulum just traffics, uh, or one of its main functions is to traffic things to and from the membrane. Right. Uh, so it's, it, a, it's, it, a, it's part of the transport system. Yes. Yeah, so it uptake, it, it's important. In, so these factors are important in uptake of, uh, so the virus binds to cell surface proteins and sends a signal into the cell because it looks like uh, things like nutrients that the cell wants to uptake. So it sends a signal to the, to the ER, the endoplasmic reticulum, that it should uh, send these factors to the surface um, and up and uh, go through endocytosis and uptake uh, those factors into the cell. Um, and then it's actually the virus. So then the virus gets into the cell and can start its dastardly deeds of self-replicating. So it's that the endoplasmic reticulum's factors are allowing, okay, it's allowing ease of entry for the virus into the cell. Yeah, so otherwise the virus uh, can't get uh, past... With, sure. The virus can Okay, go, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say otherwise it can't get past the med membrane. Yeah, no, I'm trying to speak my train of thought aloud. Oh, sorry. Uh, so it's... Uh, and, then, and then at that point, the, uh, the virus will hijack the cell and turn it into its uh, dastardly virus factory and all its children will go free and go, go on and do the same thing. I mean, that is my non-virologist view of how viruses work, yes. Uh, I will ask you this, Kelsey. How much do the figures in the results section 
help tell the story that's going on here because I am lost in this narrative at this point. Honestly, most of the figures did not help me actually understand what was going on. I see because, another one of the screens they did, I think. Um, so that was useful. It's sort of, they also have a figure in um, 3A. They have an explanation of the CRISPR screen that they did, which is uh, sort of the opposite of the RNAi screen. That's actually a cell survival assay. It's um, uh, it's this flowchart that shows uh, everything going on with the CRISPR-Cas9 methodology. I have to say, that screen is terrifying. They were inserting human genes into the Zika virus genome and then looking to see which human genes made it so that the HeLa cells could survive um, the Zika virus uh, or made Zika virus survive the... Uh, um, the infection i don't it, it was if movies have taught me anything it's putting gene, human genes onto um contagious viruses is a bad idea so so these screen figures i guess like 2b and uh what is it in 3 3d yeah 3d um are those yeah. like a common um, thing within these types of papers is that presentation of this normal um, I can't say I read a lot of genomics papers. Um, I, you know, tend to think it is because it's like a visual representation of enrichment. Um, so I, the way I'm interpreting say 3d is that the bigger the circle, essentially the more, more times they hit that gene or that gene generated a hit, um, in the data set. Yeah. In 2b, they explain it as the, the molecular weight. And I mean, it, oh, Okay, that is completely different from what I read that uh, as. Yeah, it's proportional to their respective m- molecular weight is the size of the circle, which um, yeah. doesn't seem like the most scientific way to represent that data. Um, yeah. yeah. Usually, uh, what's the point of, of that? For those of you who don't have the paper up right now, it's this visualization, which is nine circles? Various sizes just sort of stuck together that say EMC uh, 1 through 10, and then 8 and 9. I have to imagine that somehow the uh, placement of the circles affects something, like perhaps how they're actually laid out or something along those lines. Um, But it. Yeah, I. That is incredibly confusing. What does the shading mean in. uh, Uh, It says subunits are indicated in color if they scored one or uh, more of the. D-E-N-V-H-F-M-O-R-R screens. Okay, so that's if they if they got a hit on the dengue yes. virus screen, I think. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so they have the three different... So they have each individual RNA screen, the combined RNA screens, and then this more rigor screen. Yeah, that's incredibly confusing. I, that's not what I would have guessed. Like, I should be able to vaguely know what you're trying to get at with your figure without reading the caption, and I went the completely wrong direction with that. Yeah. Relative molecular weights components, 8 and 9 are shown as one subunit because there's so much and variable expression. I mean, it, it's a consistent way of showing it. I'll give it that, but I'm still not sure what it's trying to tell me, aside from the fact that Zika showed up better in the CRISPR screen than Dengue did in the RNA screens. Is that the big takeaway here? Um, they did talk about identifying. So the CRISPR screen allows is a little more sensitive to um, factors that are important early in infection. 
because it's actually looking at cell survival. So whereas uh, the RNAi screen is looking just at um, infection, uh, they talk about it at one point. Um, I'm not quite up on all the details here. They're not super clear to me, but they do talk about identifying factors with the CRISPR screen that they don't with the RNAi screen. Right. I don't think either of those are particularly helpful. So I guess while we're in the, uh, which is while we're in this, pity. you know, results section, we should talk about how it's uh, almost reads like four or five papers distilled into one. Since we haven't touched on that yet. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this is sort of a problem I have with um, with Cell in general, um, is that I feel like all of their papers are incredibly dense, and people are trying to stuff every single result they have into them, but this paper is very bad about that. Yeah, I almost expected it to be, yeah, I expected it to be done like three or four times over, and then it was like, oh, hey, we're going to do something else now. So, all right. Like, I could see how all of it fit together until the last section, um, the section where they do the proteomic screen. They all, they all of a sudden switch to a cell pull-down assay doing proteomic screen, and proteomic screen, and I'm just like, that is something completely different. Yeah, so the section that EMC associates with the OST complex is an interesting biological result, and completely different from what else, I mean outside of that the EMC is involved very different from what else they were doing. And I was like, that's, uh, that's a communication that doesn't need to be in this paper. Yeah. Like this paper tries a lot of things when it doesn't necessarily need to do as much as it did, which is, I guess, a refreshing change. But if it's symptomatic of this imprint, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Because normally when we are looking at these things, we ask, why didn't this paper do more? But here we're saying it seems that they're doing too much. And as a result, they got lost in what they were doing. Yeah. And I just think that like from a genomics point of view, a lot of the discussion they include is probably necessary to contextualize the genomics data. However, that is stuff that maybe should have been in a supplement or in an appendix because it just makes reading this paper very difficult. Uh, do you want to say anything else about the results section? Uh, pretty much covers it. We didn't even discuss figures four or five. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not quite sure how to describe either of them. And I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, it gets, yeah, it, it all just gets lost in the mud of, you know, this very nitty gritty analysis. That yeah. So do you want to hop to the discussion section then? I think we can. I don't. Maybe we should mention, I think figure 5A is actually interesting. That's a, a fluorescence study where they actually yeah. look at where the virus is localizing, and that sort of gets at the mechanism of what they're identifying. And I think that's an interesting figure. Uh, it's certainly informative. I feel informative. like that could have been a whole other paper. That's part of the... Yeah, exactly. Like, this by itself is a great foundation for an entire study on uh, virus mechanisms. You know what this is? This is somebody's PhD that they need to get the paper out, you know, so they can get a good postdoc, and they really haven't really been publishing. PhD. Yeah, and they haven't really been publishing along the way, so they just sort of shoved it all into a single paper. Because 
really this should be a paper where they do the genomics studies to um, identify these factors. And then another paper where they look at the mechanism, um, sort of what's in figure five, um, and maybe also with the proteomics uh, pull-down assay. But that could even be its own, like a short communication. Yeah. Now, this is like three people's PhD. Like and you can tell. Oh my gosh, it, it all makes sense now, because this feels so much more like when I'm reading a thesis and it just suddenly hops to some, something else in a different chapter. It's a thesis without the introductory material. Yeah. Okay, so the discussion, uh, which talks a little more about the spread of flavivirus infections and tries to contextualize uh, the way the screens worked in the broader field of uh, viral cell biology. Yeah, I have to say that by the time I got to the discussion, I really just didn't care anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was either stuff they had already said or just, I don't know. Again, it, it felt very obligatory. The thing that's interesting yeah. about it is that it reads, so like when you're going through the, uh, the results, it reads like three or four different papers as you're going through, like, hey, we did all these things. Okay, now we did all these things. Okay, now we did all these things. And the discussion itself goes through and almost reanalyzes, hey, we did all these things, and this is what we got, and this is what we got, and this is what we got. And it reads, again, like three papers that got chopped into parts and then spread out um, amongst one paper, which is weird. I don't think like this is that long of a paper either. It the PDF is 16 pages, and like there's a cover page and a couple pages of citations, but it feels a lot longer than it is as a result of that. It's the density. Yeah, and they've got these big like full-page figure spreads. Yeah, it's yeah. it's so dense. It's a neutron star of a paper. <laughs> so does anyone have anything else particularly profound to say about the discussion, aside from the fact that it did its job and... It did its job, and it did its job in a way that this specific paper would. No, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's it's citable. It comes up with an interesting biological result. You just have to really dig to get to it. Yeah, each one of those like paragraphs or sections that they have has like one sentence in it that's very citable and very much like, this is what we found. Uh, and I mean, like, it's not like the results are bad or anything, but uh, it's lost in, in the density in the mud. I mean, it ultimately comes up with a really interesting result about the life cycle of these viruses. Which is... Yes. Like, it's just. And that's you the takeaway, and that's why it will get cited. I'm trying to find that sentence so we can it's... have it recorded, but I don't need to dig. And it also just sort of teases you with that result, too, the entire time, where. Uh, from the onset, on the highlights on the on the cover page, it says these studies give a systems-wide view of human flavivirus interactions, uh, which is like, oh, I'm going to get some profound results on the life cycle of Zika and dengue. Uh, the result we're talking about here is that the EMC is basically like fundamental to the process here, right? That's that's the result you guys were talking about, correct? Yeah, so it's fundamental to the right. viral life cycle. Yes. So, um, the EMC is required by dengue virus and Zika virus in the early stages of replication. Yeah, and I mean that's that's a worthwhile um, result. I mean that's that's what I was saying at the beginning. Like, hey, that's something that's actually very interesting and probably 
at, at some level useful um, in understanding what's going on. I have several endoplasmic reticula. Maybe I shouldn't go to Rio. Sure, exactly. Um, yeah, that's why you shouldn't go to Rio. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I mean, it took a lot of effort to get there. I mean, a lot of effort in, in even reading to get there. So, yeah. Yeah. So, that was, yeah, guys, my main takeaway from this paper. <laughs> do you guys want to grade this? Well, so here's the thing with grading this one is I think our fundamental I'm not sure I'm qualified is... to. <laughs> exactly. We're not the target audience for this paper, and that became more and more apparent as I read through it, is that this is definitely written for someone with a heavy background. It would be as if, you know, a, a biologist read a particle physics paper. You know, you yeah. would get pretty much lost because they're targeted for the particle physics community. Mm -hmm. vice versa i don't feel at all qualified because this could be a brilliant paper and i just not know what's going what's happening with it you know um it seemed profound so. i just wanted to be <laughs> able will, to pick it apart better i will say as the person with the most uh sort of relevant background for reading this paper uh it has some interesting biology in it but it is still very hard to read and i think it's still poorly written do you think you would classify yourself as uh, a member of the target audience of this paper or not? The target audience, no. I'm, okay. I don't do anything even close to genomics. Would um, you consider yourself part of the broader audience of this paper? Um, insofar as um, I'm part of the biology community, yes. Um, I'm not a virologist, however, so um, again, maybe it's like two steps removed uh, from the actual audience of this paper right uh so what do you guys think we learned about the nature of publishing through this discussion because i think that's something i don't think i expected to talk about today but definitely talked a lot about uh in the beginning and while we were discussing the structure of this paper i think i'm going to use that as our alternative to grading this episode because that seems to be the direction this discussion is taken yeah i think it's a good question um i think the one thing that's kind of odd about this is the fact that it's in like an open access journal but it has more of a, a niche audience I think that that's kind right. of um, weird I don't know if that's accepted or wrong I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it but I think it's odd so I think that's pretty much all I really wanted to say there is that the make sure you publish to journals that are the target audience of what you're publishing about um I think that maybe this would have flourished. I mean, cell goes than... open after twelve months. Okay. Cell proper goes open after twelve months, and I think it's thoroughly possible that maybe they submitted this to Cell and got passed down the editing line uh, to a different journal in their imprint. Okay. See, I this definitely feels like. So I'll I'll just finish my thought. But uh... I feel like even if. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I was thinking like I was thinking that it would have done better in Cell proper, um, but if yeah, it had to get pushed down the publishing line, that does make a lot more sense. Like, it seems thoroughly possible that that is what happened. It's based on the structure of this paper and based on the fact that I am that has definitely happened to a couple of papers that I've been observing the publication process for. That's fair. I, I just sort of feel like that um, if, you know, sell, you know, same with nature and science, while they are 
a little more general. So sometimes like your results both have to be of general interest, but also I think it should be a little bit more generally accessible in the writing to sort of the scientific community, or in this case, the biological community. Um, Maybe that's not actually how their editorial standards work, but that's just how I feel uh, about it. And so reading this paper, I really feel like this should be in a genomics or a virology journal. And I just, somebody who's not interested in either of those things should not be reading this paper. Right. As uh, as Tyler and I proved. (laughs) I mean, I read off some of the some of the other journals in Cell earlier, and I'm not sure this cleanly fits in any of the other other ones. Maybe you can make a case for molecular cell, but that seems too much like pigeonholing. Yeah, I mean, my point is just that, like, and maybe this has less to do with what that journal, this probably has less to do with what the journal editors chose to do with this paper than with, um, I think, what the uh, author, where the authors chose to submit it. I don't think it's a good fit um, for a cell or, you know, this uh, cell reports. I think it is a little bit too, spe- unless they're going to write it so that it's more generally accessible or more clear what the actual biology is, then it shouldn't be in a general biology journal. Yeah. So yeah, let's, uh, let's find our high note because we talked a lot about this paper. I think because this has been an hour of us and over. Yeah. No, I think, <laughs> sorry I think about some this good... paper. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think we actually got some good discussion out on the nature of how, this paper should have been structured and where it should have gone. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it is a very focused, um, this is a very focused genomics paper and it's just not something that we necessarily have the requisite training to talk about. Uh, to it's true. As high of a caliber as we had discussed the other two. Uh, so let's find our high note. Let's say you are a panelist at a pop culture convention and you've been asked to speak on science. What are you going to talk about? Oh man! <laughs> Basically, I'm I, saying uh, pitch your pitch your own pa- pitch your own panel at Comic Con. Well, my gut instinct is to pitch the science is problematic panel. Uh, we all know how that goes down uh, when I talk about that on the internet, though. I so, feel like that'd be really cool at like AAAS, though. Yeah, uh, I'd probably I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about lately about how science fiction um, loses me when I know more, when it's obvious to me that I know more science than the writer. Yeah. So uh, rather than you know you can obfuscate the science, but when they get specifically into something and I realize like and I realize that I know more than they do about it, then it tends to lose me. So probably something about that about like science in science fiction science in fiction and science how it's literally in fiction yeah science yeah science li- yeah um you know like uh, a big sort of example that i've run across is in uh the show the hundred they literally say the line which is you know just like teen pop sci-fi uh right. they literally say the line your bodies metabolize radiation <laughs> um and i died a little bit on the inside yeah. So something along those lines, probably. So uh, fair warning, I've never been to a Comic-Con or anything of the nature, so I don't really know what panels go on there. Um, but I will bounce off of that, and I think it would be interesting to talk about, um, and it's been done probably hundreds of times, um, but, you know, the physical um, concepts behind some of my favorite movies, uh, 
particularly uh, Interstellar and The Martian, which are both you know recent hits. I'm surprised there wasn't that. I'm surprised there actually weren't any panels on that this year. Then again, like Star Wars and Star Trek are definitely way bigger and more iconic question mark to science fiction but i feel like it would have been interesting to view the lens of modern science fiction and then throw to like a jpl scientist or throw to a uh throw to a caltech scientist because it's close enough that it's close enough to la that scientists drove down like yeah what's cool about like like interstellar i mentioned so with interstellar i mentioned like uh kip (laughs) thorne was a guy who worked on that who's like in incredible mind in the areas of uh relativity and and general relativity and was one of the guys that kind of paved the way for that um and he worked on that movie and i think um there's a lot of really interesting principles applied there and then the martian like andy weir uh who's the author of the book got way into the science and the whole thing and like it's pretty solid like there are definitely parts where it bridges into the science fiction realm but I think, uh, you know, showing that some of the science there is actually legit would be pretty cool. I mean, the other cool thing about The Martian is it's sound for when it was written. And then the studies we're doing on Mars came back around and sort of disproved some of the stuff that was going on. Which is also one of those whole nature of science things where it, as far as he knew, that was a fact. And then it turns out, oh, no, it wasn't a fact. That doesn't make it wrong. It's still narratively interesting. Yeah. It's just, up as far as he knew, that was correct. And it turns out it wasn't. Big whoop. Mm. Definitely. Actually, can I amend my answer? Yes. Because I thought of something better. Cool. <laughs> or at least more true to, to me uh, would be something about uh, sort of the life sciences, biology, in, um, and chemistry in pop culture. Um, I would title a panel, can we please stop talking about space, uh, the other sciences, <laughs> um, in fiction. No, no we can't. <laughs> I mean, then it just evolve into a discussion about zombies. We could talk about the biology of zombies, like, I mean, I just, uh, gonna angle that towards my particular interests a little bit more. Sure. Uh, so, cause you can I mean, do science fiction and not have it be about space. Right, right. I'm just saying, like, this is... Tyler is the particle physicist, and you are the biophysicist who has a lot more bio, uh, bio-leanings. So... Yeah. It's it's a very clear divide that I think is being displayed here. <laughs> I'll be honest, I yeah. asked this question because I don't know what my answer would be. Uh, I think it's really cool that science fiction does not need to be true to life to be compelling and so that part of it tickles me but i also think that it's important that we do have compelling and at least somewhat accurate science in our science fiction because that is a potential vector to produce future scientists and if they are getting the wrong impression from their media then we could have a problem (laughs) so that is my non-answer so i guess on that note it's time to end uh, Kelsey, yeah, where can we find you? Find me uh, on Tumblr at Adventures in Chemistry. Uh, also, I run the Expert Citation Tumblr page, um, where I'll be posting the link to the article that we discussed, um, and uh, all the articles that we discuss uh, can be found there. Um, I'm on Twitter at and 
everything else as ADVS in Chem, uh, where you know you can find all the other things I occasionally talk about <laughs> and pictures of my cat. Um, like talking about uh, about a Minnesota North Star snapback. Yeah, because gotta have a sports-related snapback from a team that no longer exists. Gotta maintain my hipster cred. Rippin' dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find me at JLM Quavis on Twitter, Instagram, but yeah, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, on, uh, you can also follow my tum Tumblr, Professor What, which is dead and I don't post from, but feel free to look at the archives there, I guess. And I'm Tyler Birch. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Tyler J. Birch. Um, actually, that's universal for all social media, so go ahead and find me wherever. Um, and my SoundCloud link will be plugged at the end of this as well. Follow the show at Expert Citation on, uh, as Kelsey said earlier, on Tumblr. Uh, we're also on Twitter. We're also on WordPress, expertcitation.wordpress.com. It's probably one of the better ways you can find the show. But hey, we're also available on iTunes and on Google Play. If you're feeling generous, feel free to give us a five-star rating and uh, nobody reads the reviews. Instead of a review, leave us what your science fiction panel would be at a pop culture convention. Uh, until next time, this has been Expert Citation. I'm Joe. I'm Kelsey. See you next time. Expert Citation is hosted by Joe Cuevas, Kelsey McCoy, and Tyler Birch. Expert Citation is also produced by Joe Cuevas. Our opening and closing music was also provided by Tyler Birch. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Tyler dash James dash 4693. Expert Citation is a production of the IamKuhan.com network. More great podcasts at IamKuhan.com.